0: Continuing in our study of Mark, and we'll be in chapter 14 this morning. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 26. If you're using a pew Bible, I believe that's on page 826. Right, Mark 14, 1 through 26. Now the Passover and the festival unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. And truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly I tell you, One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. It is one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it. This is my body. Then he took the cup. And we had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever heard the old preacher joke about the man in the village during the flood? Uh, the floodwaters are coming and the, the water's rising up and it, it gets to about his knees and the friends start to leave town. And so they're in a canoe and they come by and they say, hey, hop in with us, we'll, we'll rescue you. And he said, nope, the Lord is gonna save me. I have faith, the Lord is gonna save me. And so he waits, a couple hours go by and at this point the water's up to his chin and he's barely hanging on in his living room still. And a motorboat comes by and says, hop in, we're here to save you. He says, nope, the Lord is gonna rescue me, I trust him. Hours later, he's now on his roof, sitting there, cold, a little befuddled, and he hears the dot, 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 dot of the helicopter coming in, lowers the rescue basket. The diver comes in to get him, sir, we're here to rescue you. He says, nope, the Lord is going to rescue me. Well, the man drowned. And in heaven, he graciously says to the Lord, why didn't you come to rescue me? And the Lord responded, well, I sent you a canoe and a motorboat and a helicopter. What more did you need? It is a rather silly joke, but it is making a very important point. God uses means to accomplish his ends. God uses means to make preparations to accomplish his ends. You see, as the sovereign creator of all things, nothing hinders him. He could accomplish his ends by fiat. He told the sun to stand still in the days of Joshua. He made the bush burn without being consumed. God doesn't need us. But God accomplishes his ends through means. Nothing hinders God. He was not constrained. He was not forced to make this world this way with that tree in that garden. Oh, he chose to do it. God is maximally free. And he chose this world for his purposes. And He doesn't choose flippantly or accidentally. He does all things for his purposes and pleasure. And as we come to the last two and a half chapters of Mark's gospel, this theme will be pounded away at, that God is accomplishing his perfect will and plan through human means. Mark will be at pains to show us that the plotting and the planning, the betraying and the beating, the cursing and the crucifying of Christ all flow from God's eternal plan. The plan of God to use free humans, responsible humans, as the means to accomplish his ends. This is the last section of Mark's gospel and is the, the passion or the suffering section of Jesus. It is the, those last couple days driving us to the cross and the resurrection as we prepare for Easter Sunday. And we will see nothing in this section or ever happen to Jesus by accident. Jesus is not some divine chess move played by God at the 11th hour to win the day. No, Jesus is the eternal Son of God incarnate. The entire universe was created to bend around the cradle and the cross and the crown. It all hinges on this week, this event, which is why our sermon this morning is titled Making Preparations. Because God's preparations bent towards this day that we will see. But we're also gonna see a number of human preparations that flow through this passage. I'm just gonna list six of them for you right now. The priests and scribes plot and prepare to kill Jesus. The unnamed woman unknowingly prepares Jesus for his burial. Judas prepares to betray Jesus. Two disciples prepare for the meal. Jesus prepares the disciples for the fact that one of their own will betray him. And Jesus prepares for the new covenant in his blood by transforming the Passover. There are more, but those are just the first six we'll look at here. So, the sermon making preparations, and here's the three points we'll walk through today. The plot and the anointing in verses 1 through 11. The preparation and the woe, 12 through 21. And the Passover and the New Covenant, 22 through 26. So one more time, the plot and the anointing. Look again at verse 1 through 11. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and teachers of the law were scheming to arrest jesus secretly and kill him but not during the festival they said or the people may riot while he was in bethany reclining at the table in the home of simon the leper a woman came with an alabaster alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head some of those present were saying indignantly to one another why this waste of perfume it could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. In rereading these verses, did you catch? This is one of those Mark sandwiches, those Mark sandwiches. It starts with the chief priests and scribes, and it ends with the chief priests and scribes. Well, as Mark has done throughout his gospel, whenever he interrupts a story to tell another story and come back to it, they're mutually interpretive. The, The one in the middle gives us clues as to further what's happening in this scene. Whereas the priests and scribes plot to bring disaster and death, Judas seeks money, and the unnamed woman seeks to bless at great personal expense. Uh, the, the outside poise, points are, are being used for their own personal advancement, their own personal gain, and she's giving all that she has. The contrast is intentionally sharp. With that general overview in mind, look at some of the details we find in this section. First, Mark layers his language to, to highlight for us just the, the wickedness on display of these priests and scribes. They're plotting and planning. Uh, the NIV translation says that they were seeking to arrest him secretly. That's a, that's a tame translation. Uh, the word there speaks of intentional deceit and trickery of plotting. Uh, moreover, we read they were scheming to accomplish this secret arrest. But once again, those words are, are murderous in their intent. You see, these are the alleged pillars of the community, and yet they're plotting the assassination of Jesus. And then they say, but they dare not do it during the festival. Well, here's why. Uh, The Passover meal had to be eaten in Jerusalem, and so within the city limits, meaning that it was one of the three Jewish feasts which pilgrimage was required. And it meant that the population of the city would swell massively. And they would come in for this feast. And given that the Passover was a remembrance of their exodus from Egypt, of their freedom from being in bondage to the Egyptians, there was a fair bit of kind of nationalistic pride that went with the celebration of this particular festival. And so because of that, the Romans would respond by sending in extra troops. Pilate didn't live there. He was there to oversee the extra troops because they're always worried that something was going to get out of hand at the Passover. So, here's these priests and scribes plotting the arrest and murder, but they discern the danger of doing so during the festival. So, to put it sharply, for fear of keeping the peace, they plot to murder the Prince of Peace, but only at the time when it will not threaten their positions of power. Then the scene shifts sharply after that introduction. It doesn't even mention Jesus' name. It's just he is reclining at the table, and this unnamed woman breaks a jar of perfume to anoint him. Once again, Mark stacks up words to show you just how valuable it is, and the NIV says it was, it was greater than a year's wage, or just about a year's wage. She breaks the jar so that way it's demonstrating there's nothing left. It's all poured out. It is an entire offering, as it were. And those present respond, and they speak to her harshly. Again, the NIV is a little gentle. They rebuke her. Uh, they, they continue to do so until Jesus puts a stop to it. Well... In their desire to care for the poor, of course, that's laudable, but their treatment of the woman shows a deep inconsistency, does it not? It's a vivid picture of how we can be so certain that something is right, and yet we can go about standing for it in a very incorrect way. So Jesus corrects them. But what she has done is a beautiful thing. She has anointed him for his burial, and she will be remembered wherever this gospel is preached. Notice, this gospel will be preached to the world Uh, Though Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, his mission was always one intended to be for the whole world, to proclaim to the whole world. And ironically, this unnamed woman will be remembered throughout the world for this act of love and devotion. Now, John's account tells us that this was Mary, Martha's sister, but Mark leaves her unnamed intentionally to sharpen his story. Because John's gospel also tells us that Judas was a thief. And so likely his loss of an opportunity of selling off some of the perfume and getting the money for himself is the reason he ends up going out at the end and and turning Jesus over, betraying him. So by leaving those two details out, what Mark is doing from a story perspective is he's grabbing us. This woman would be remembered for her generosity, whereas Judas would be remembered for his betrayal. And Mark doesn't even tell us how much he was betrayed for. It was just, we'll give you some money at some point, is all they say. It's a beautiful storytelling that Mark is doing here to to help us to feel the tension going on. Again, we we know the amount from the other Gospels, but the point is to show the insiders and outsiders that Mark has run throughout his Gospel. She's an outsider. She's a woman. She's unnamed. And she gives this incredible gift. And whereas the insider chief priests and scribes and Judas 1 of the 12 are the very ones seeking to plot to kill the Messiah... Another contrast that's on display in these sandwich stories is the secrecy. Notice the openness versus the secrecy. Uh, The the chief priest and scribe they meet in secret. They plot and plan and scheme in secret. Whereas the woman comes out right in the open, breaks open the vase, pours it out in open. That's why there's many proverbs about how secrets and whispered conversations are cancerous and destructive. Uh, Consider Proverbs 16.28. A perverse person stirs up conflict. And a whisperer, or you could translate that, a gossip, separates close friends. A Proverbs 18.8. The word of a gossip are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inmost parts. I mean, they affect the whole soul of a person. And there's Proverbs 26.20. Without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a coral dies down. That last proverb is particularly important because notice what's happening here. The chief priests and scribes were willing to let it go. Let's wait till after the festival. We'll just let this thing die down a little bit. We can't stir up stuff with all the people in town. But Judas goes secretly and stokes the fire and gets things going again. And they are delighted. Uh, You can translate that rejoicing to hear that they have a way of not having to wait any longer. Well, One final insight from the scene is Jesus declares that she prepared him for his burial. And no one says a word about it. You've walked with the man for three years. You've seen him do miracles, countless miracles. John says so many miracles, they couldn't write enough books to tell them all. And he says, she just anointed me for my burial. Nothing. Notice how easy it is to be so captivated with your little world, so consumed with it's bothering us that we can miss the work of God right in front of us. I mean, that's what's happening here. Other disciples were so upset over the loss of funds. eh, They miss what is happening right before their eyes. Jesus declared he's going to be buried. And they completely miss it. Oh, by way of application, in keeping with this theme of making preparations, I wonder how many of you are like me, and maybe you are cursed with a tendency towards perfectionism. You see, my father grew up the son of a Marine Corps gunnery sergeant. In that home, failure was not an option. Only perfection was accepted. But the thing is, we're all failures. (laughs) There's no such thing as perfection. And so when failure happened, my dad was usually violently beaten by his father. Now, I praise God that my father was not physically abusive, but the culture of perfectionism was something that just I grew up with and just pervaded my house. So much so that at times, perfection becomes the enemy of the good. You aware that saying? We dare not let perfection become the enemy of the good, because perfection is impossible. Uh, And this is the lesson the Lord seems intent to beat into my thick head, uh, because I'm working on my fourth theological degree, and you know what's fascinating about going to school? Deadlines don't change for your perfect paper. They don't care. The paper's due when it's due, and it's never perfect when it comes back. Uh, same thing being a preacher. Sunday doesn't wait for you to wr- iron out the wrinkles of a sermon. Now, there's no such thing as perfection. But it's a lesson apparently I need to keep learning because the Lord constantly brings me back to it again and again. Maybe that's true for you. Uh, maybe there's some other thing that, that grabs you, that, that keeps you distracted. Uh, what is it that maybe keeps you so focused that maybe you're missing what the Lord is doing? You see, friends, there's no perfect church. There's no perfect leaders there's no perfect christians but the reality is we need to see that there's no such thing as perfection there's no illusion of perfection out there that we can drive toward so we cannot allow perfection to be the enemy of the good i mean we're going to try things and fail we're going to make attempts and they're not going to work out that happens in life all the time it happens in business it happens in school But in God's kindness, it is through our mistakes that we learn and grow and change. If the disciples were required to be perfect, the gospel never would have gone to the nation and never would have left that upper room because they're not perfect. The only way the gospel goes to the nations is through the disciples stumbling and staggering forward, learning to trust Jesus. So praise God. He uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect ends. This is why Mark Strauss summarizes this section so well in his commentary. He says this, between the scheming of Judas and the religious leaders and the love and devotion of this woman, you see this beautiful contrast. She acts out of sacrificial love for him. The leaders, out of self-interest, seeking to destroy the one that they view as a threat to their authority. She acts with humility. They demonstrate pride. She has the mindset of the kingdom. They are building their own personal empires. You see, friends, We're not here to pursue perfect ministry or church or programs or people. We're here to humbly ask Jesus to use broken people for his glory and the good of his kingdom. That's the plotting and the anointing. And now we come to the preparation and the woe. Look at verse 12 through 21 with me. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owners of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large uh, room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, eating, he said, Truly I tell you, One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. And one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. As I explained in the introduction, here we find God driving to accomplish his eternal plan, but through real human choices. You see, Mark, in his gospel, this is the only Passover he mentions. And so we're supposed to have this feeling that this whole book has been building towards this festival, this meal. It's been being prepared for. So the disciples ask, where are we to go make preparations for the Passover? And, and Jesus tells them precisely where to go. Now, it could be that Jesus had worked out a deal with the man in advance. But the way the story is told is intentionally to drive us to the fact that God knows and he's working out his plans So Jesus tells them, go find this man, and he'll have a room, and you make it there. Well, the disciples go into the city, and they find everything just as Jesus had said. The fact that Mark tells us Jesus came to the meal with the twelve hints that it's likely other disciples were there celebrating the meal with him, contrary to the Lord's Supper painting, or the Last Supper painting, rather. There may have been others there. That's why he calls out the twelve. Mark's focus, however, is on the twelve, and particularly on one of them. While Jesus is reclining, he says, one of you will betray me. They respond with sorrow. Is it me? And Jesus clarifies. It's one of the 12, one who eats the Passover meal with Jesus. Now, we, as the readers, know, of course, that this is Judas. But they don't. They remain in the dark. So the story has been exceedingly clear. Judas has chosen to betray Jesus. This is his choice. Jesus gives a woe against him. Woe to that man for choosing to do that. Very clear, is it not? But, in John's account, we read that after this conversation, Satan entered him, and then he went to betray Jesus. The emphasis here is in Judas, and John, it's on Satan. But which is it? Was it Judas's choice, or was it Satan's trickery? Of course, the answer must be both. Both Judas and Satan desire Jesus to be handed over. To attempt to say one or the other is to try to parse the authority of Scripture and say it can only be one or the other. No, they're both true. In this single person's free choice, there are two agents operating, working. But this raises another issue. Because did you see Jesus in verse 21, what he said? The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, meaning God planned that. This is what you find in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53:4. He was smitten by God. It's even clearer in Isaiah 53.10. It was the will of the Lord of Yahweh to crush him. He, Yahweh, has put him to grief. So which is it? Was it Judas and his choosing? Satan and his deceiving? Or Yahweh and his planning? John highlights Satan. Luke's account highlights God. Luke 22.22. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. See, friends, just as we don't have the authority to play the either-or game with Judas and Satan, we do not have the authority to ignore that this was God's plan from before the beginning. What complicates this for us, though, is that God planning the crucifixion of his son, is that James is very clear. God is perfect, he's holy, he cannot do nor tempt with evil, and yet he planned the crucifixion. This means that we need to make sure that we have enough categories in our mind to allow for these tensions. Of God's unchangeable plan to use Satan and Judas as sin, His plan is perfect, and their wickedness is entirely their doing, and they are guilty and they are culpable, and they chose. But the Bible does not let us duck this issue. The cross of Christ was plan A. Revelation 13:8: The Lamb was crucified before the foundations of the world. It was certain. There never was a plan B. God is perfect. He cannot have a plan B by definition. If you're perfect, your plan is always perfect. Now, I know these things stretch our minds to the breaking point, but friends, we must speak where the Bible speaks. Now, it is interesting to note how down through the centuries, though, this issue of free will versus fate or determinism has been debated down through the centuries in the realms of philosophy. It's fascinating. Now, most of us will say that well, free will is just common sense. I mean, I, I can choose to eat ice cream instead of dinner tonight. My physique says I eat not enough salads, right? I have free choice. Nobody's forcing me to do that. And yet, other philosophers come along and they counter, but here's the thing. I didn't choose my century of my birth and my parents and my genetics and the country. And that. There's so much that I didn't choose. This is the debate of nature versus nurture, right? You've probably heard about this. Well, the arguments continue, and they're going to continue. And they're good arguments. There's really sharp arguments on both sides. Well, I didn't choose anything about my entire life, so could I have done something different? Well, one of the proponents that argues for this uh, these days is atheist uh, philosopher and neuroscientist Sam Harris, and he has this book he wrote denouncing free will, and he's considered to be one of the best arguments for saying there's no such thing as free will. It's just an illusion. And he writes in this book a a grotesque true story of a crime which took place that I'm not going to recount the details of here. But after recounting this, I mean just the worst type of evil you can fathom, crime that took place. He writes this of the perpetrators. As sickening as I find their behavior, I have to admit, if I were to trade places with one of these men, Adam for Adam, I would be him. There's no extra part of me that could decide to see the world differently or to resist the impulse to victimize people. Even if you believe that every human harbors an immortal soul, the problem of responsibility remains. I cannot take credit for the fact that I do not have the soul of a psychopath. If his genes and life experience and brain or soul in an identical state were mine, I would have acted just as he acted. He goes on to to make uh, this argument, to saying there's an intuitive sense about that because, again, we don't choose where we grow up or who our parents were what our life experiences are. The argument for nature shaping us far more than nurture is a strong one that needs to be wrestled with. But of course, in the deepest of ironies, Sam Harris denies free will, and yet his website notes that his writing and public lectures focus on how a growing understanding of ourselves and the world is changing our sense of how we should live. Which just makes no sense to me whatsoever. I I can't put those two things together in my brain. But Sam Harris is much smarter than me, perhaps. Here's why I bring this up, though. The philosophical debate's going to continue. And those are going to strongly argue for unhindered free will, and others are going to retort, well, you didn't choose your life. But all along, the Bible has held these two things in tension with no problems whatsoever. This is our Father's world. He declared the end from the beginning. He didn't discover it. He declared it. He decreed it. He's working out all things according to the counsel of His will. However, mysteriously, providentially, beyond our understanding... We're free creatures who make choices with real consequences. And some of those wicked human choices are also influenced by Satan. The Bible sees all of these things as being in harmony, not in dissonance. So we dare not create dissonance where the Bible sees harmony. James Edwards writes this in verse 21. He says, this is one of the most suggestive verses in the Bible, in the scriptures, on the relationship between divine causality and human responsibility. The betrayer was one of Jesus's chosen disciples. His betrayal was a grave evil, but it also seemed necessary for the fulfillment of God's plan. Jesus goes in accordance with God's predetermined will, but the betrayer is not exonerated of guilt. Neither Jesus nor Judas is an instrument of blind fate or a pawn of divine strategy. Divine providence neither cancels human freedom nor relieves responsibility for moral choices. Both currents of divine foreordination and human free will intersect in the verb to deliver up, or the NIV translates it, to betray. In one act, Jesus is employed in God's holy and necessary purpose, and he's betrayed by Judas to his enemies. Now, in no way does the fact that the Bible holds these things with no tension mean that there are easy answers to the problem of evil. There are not. But I just want to continue to come back to the fact that apart from God, the concept of evil just doesn't make sense. The reason Putin's despotic attack is so gross is because he's killing people made in the image of God. If they were just merely space dust who evolved into living, breathing creatures, well, it's just more space dust. But no, it's wrong because they've been made in the image of God who is infinitely valuable. But even more than that, it's wrong because to despise something God has made is to despise God himself. It is to revolt against God against his rule and his plan and his purposes. You see, what makes all sin and evil in the world so horrific is that all sin is ultimately, finally, against God. He's the most offended party. Putin's war crimes are ultimately against the creator, God. Putin is denying that God exists and, and he has the final say. This is why Jesus compares getting angry at someone in the Sermon on the Mount with murder. Because to be angry at somebody who's been made in the image of God is to say, God is wrong. He shouldn't have made that person. Now, we might not ever vocalize those words, but Jesus says that's what's going on. We're despising God when we despise those he has created. That's why Jesus offers this woe against the one betraying him. But notice, he doesn't call him out by name. Now, one level, he doesn't call him out by name because he needs him to continue to to betray him, turn him over. But at another level, I think James Edwards is exactly right, that Jesus leaves him nameless so that the warning lands on everyone who reads this passage. And we respond as the disciples do. Could it be I? In what ways have we betrayed our Creator? Since all sin is ultimately against God, the Christian life is one of keeping short accounts with God and others. I mean, Jesus warned in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment. For every empty word they have spoken. Remember, Judas didn't physically attack Jesus. He just whispered a word about him and kissed him on the cheek. But woe to that man. See, Christians, we must be so careful not to minimize sin. All sin is against God, even empty words and anger. And that brings us to our last point, the Passover and the New Covenant. Look at verses 22 through 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. When he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, commentators will note that we're not entirely clear how much of the later Passover festival that we know about was actually happening in Jesus' day. We have a fair bit of rabbinic information from later, but as far as if they were doing that exact thing, we don't know for sure. What we do know for sure is that the Passover was a family meal. We read that earlier from Exodus chapter 12. It was a family meal. Now, if you couldn't consume the whole lamb, you invited another family, but it was a family meal. And at a certain point, the youngest son in the night was supposed to ask, why is this night different than any other night? And the father was to answer by recounting the Exodus. But he wasn't supposed to recount the Exodus merely as a story that is told. He was supposed to tell that story as if he personally lived through it, which is why Exodus 13, 8, Moses says, you shall tell your son, so speaking to the father, on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Every generation is supposed to say, I am the one who experienced the covering of the lamb. I am the one over whom the angel of death had passed. The father tells the story as if he lived through it. Well, again, based on later sources, uh, there's a chance the Passover meal they celebrated that night would have been structured around four cups of wine and the singing of the Hallel Psalms, which is Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. They'd sing the first half uh, and then the second half at the end. And the father, father would have used unleavened bread as a visual of leaving in haste and the bitter herbs causing the shedding of tears, which we read about in Exodus 12, picturing their bitter bondage in Egypt. And then after the second cup of wine, the father would have blessed that bread and he would have broken it and handed it and distributed it to the family. And then they would have eaten the meal with the unleavened bread, the lamb whose blood had been used to shelter them from sin and death. After the meal, they would have had the third cup of wine and they would finish singing the Psalms 116-118 before the final cup of wine and the end of the meal but here we find jesus transforms the passover in several ways or perhaps better we should say jesus demonstrates what the passover had been pointing to and preparing for all along so first jesus reorients this family meal jesus leads the meal but he's not the patriarch eating with his family he's eating with his disciples We saw this reorienting already happen in Mark's gospel back in chapter 3 when Jesus was teaching and, and they came and said, your mother and brothers are looking for you. And he points to those in front of him. He says, whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and sister and brother. See, in the new covenant Jesus is inaugurating, it's not about which family you're born into. It's about which family you believe into. There's no being born into the new covenant. There's only being born again into the new covenant. No longer is the family of God defined by genealogy, but by repentance and faith in the true Son of God, by whom we are adopted as sons and daughters of the King. So as the old saying goes, blood is in fact thicker than water, if by that we mean it's the blood of Jesus that unites us together in Him, into the true family of God. That's the first transformation. The second transformation of the Passover is seen in the change of what the unleavened bread represents Instead of the bread focusing on their need to leave in haste, Jesus changes what is being signified. The bread for God's people now is to represent his body broken for his people. It now represents the true bread of life. Jesus is the true sustenance God's people need for life's journey. In the wilderness, they had the manna. Now God's people have Christ and they feast on him. By growing and trusting him and and partaking of him in life together and love. And in the visual imagery, of course, of the remembrance. Then after the supper, he gave the cup and they all drank from it. And then he tells them it's in his blood. Probably a good order of things. Have them drink from the cup before you tell them that that's your blood, what it represents. But you see, he says it's not just any blood. He changes this cup to represent my blood of the covenant. This is language drawn from Exodus 24, where Moses took the blood of the covenant and sprinkled it on the people. Jesus mentions that his blood of the covenant can only refer to the new covenant promised by Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel and others. This new covenant represents the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Hebrews 8, 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Well, that's how Jesus transforms the Passover. Well, each month we read Paul and his application of this text, Jesus' words of institution to us as a church before we take the Lord's Supper. See, Paul was seeking to correct that church and their abuse of this new covenant meal. And in that passage, he says the meal is celebrated when they come together as a church, quite literally, in ecclesia, in the assembly. They gather together together. As a church, to take the Lord's Supper, it is a new covenant meal for the new covenant community of the church. And as with the old covenant meal of Passover, the Lord's Supper is a remembrance. We physically hold bread and cup. And in so doing, we are to be those remembering with our whole selves. Just like the Father who said, when for me I was brought out, we are to hold those things he died for me. Holding the elements, which is why Paul says in that passage, Whenever you do this, you declare his death for you. Notice what this means. To take the meal, declaring our remembrance of Christ's death for our sins, while living in unrepentant sin, means we're denying with our lives what we are declaring with our mouths. That's why Paul includes the warning. D.A. Carson puts it well. How can we possibly come to the Lord's table saying, I remember he died for my sins while we are, in fact, nurturing sin. How can we say, I remember he died because of my bitterness, when I'm nurturing my bitterness? This is why Paul's warning is stunning. He says, those who eat that meal, partake of that meal in an unworthy manner, quote, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. It's a similar woe to what Jesus gave to Judas. It's the warning. I fear that far too many Christians have taken lightly, this is a strong warning by paul and this is why i remind us each month two weeks in advance a week in advance we are to make preparation so members of bethany we have one more week to confess empty words to confess gossip and slander to repent to those we may have wounded with our words we have one more week to repent of disunity and division distrust we have a week Before we gather again next Sunday and declare the Lord's death is for us. So may we do so and be sure that we do not have unrepentant sin and broken relationships that we're clinging to because we're too proud to repent. To partake of the Lord's Supper comes with a stern warning. So may we never approach the table in a way that would leave us guilty of the body and blood of our Lord and Savior. Well, I opened by noting the different preparations found in this passage. Jesus' transformation of the Passover, showing how the old covenant meal was a preparation for the far greater meal. But it wasn't only a preparation for the Lord's Supper. It was actually a preparation for the meal after that, which is why the Lord's Supper both looks back and looks ahead. It was a preparation for the eternal feast, which is why Jesus says, I will not eat of the fruit, drink of the fruit of the vine again until I come back to the consummated feast. So we must see then that the final preparation found in this passage of Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper is the very means that God uses to prepare us, his people. See, friends, as we regularly partake in that meal, examining ourselves, preparing ourselves, repenting of sin, God is preparing us to be in his presence on the final meal. The feast where all of his blood-bought people will perfectly be united in him where we will no longer need the warnings of partaking unworthily, because on that day we will have been made new in the consummated kingdom of our Lord. You see, when Israel was in exile, at the end of the Passover, they had a saying, next year in Jerusalem. What they said by that phrase was, something's not right. This meal is supposed to be celebrated in Jerusalem. This is to be celebrated in the city of the great king. And it was a yearly reminder that though they came and worshipped God as they were told, something was broken, something was missing. The author of Hebrews is it pains to demonstrate just how much better the new covenant is in Jesus' blood. So as I said in the prayer, he says in Hebrews 12, We have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, and to angels in festal gatherings, and to thousands upon thousands of the firstborn of the dead, and to the new heavenly Jerusalem. Because if you are in Christ, friend, if you have repented and trusted in Christ, then you are raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. And never again do you have to worry about that covenant failing, about being outside of Jerusalem, because this covenant is perfect. It is a covenant based not upon us, but upon his blood, which is why we sing. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain. For me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word. We thank you that you meet us in your word. For your son who became the word made flesh. And yet as Hebrews 1 says, that he was the final declaration. He was the final revelation. And yet you continue to speak to us through your word. So Holy Spirit, would you make your word alive to us? Would it shape us and make us more like your son, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.